Greetings and salutations. I am Ken Barrios, your success coach. I hope you unleash your talents and maximize your impact without compromising your time. It is my pleasure to read the 16 Laws of Success by Napoleon Hill, written in 1928 and now public domain. My hope is that you will take from these small segments of reading the insight and wisdom of a philosophy that has over a hundred years of practical experimentation. With that said, let us begin. Hello. So, uh, before we get started on the reading today, I just want to put this a little bit in context. I think it's important that when you feel stuck, the most important thing you can do is action. Because you can't think your way out of being unstuck. So, I've begun tonight so that I can hopefully sleep. With the reading, continuing the reading of Napoleon Hill's 16 Laws of Success, we're on chapter 7, page 26. We're about to learn about the cancer, and um, I hope you enjoy. So here we go, and it begins. For more than 20 years, she kept this up. A few weeks ago, she died with cancer on her left breast. If suggestion will actually turn the edge of a plank into a guillotine blade and transform healthy body cells into parasites out of which cancer will develop, can you not imagine what it will do in destroying disease germs if properly directed? Suggestion is the law through which mental healers work what appeared to be miracles. I have personally witnessed the removal of parasitical growths known as warts through the aid of suggestion within 48 hours. You, the reader of this lesson, can be sent to bed with imaginary sickness of the worst sort in two hours' time or less through the use of suggestion. If you should start down the street and three or four people in, in whom you had confidence should meet you and each exclaim that you look ill, you would be ready for a doctor. This brings to mind an experience that I had once with a life insurance salesman. I had made application for a policy but was undecided as to whether I should take ten or $20,000. Meanwhile, the agent had sent me to the life insurance company's doctor to be examined. The following day, I was called back for another examination. The second time the examination was more searching, and the doctor carried a worried look on his face. The third day, I was called back again, and this time two consulting physicians were there to look me over. They gave me the most searching examination I had ever received or even heard of. The next day, the agent called on me and addressed me as follows. I do not wish to alarm you, but the doctors who examine you do not agree on your analysis. You have not yet decided whether you will take ten dollars or $20,000 worth of insurance, and I do not think it is fair for me to give you a report on your medical examination until you make this decision. Because if I did, you might feel that I was urging you to take the larger amount. Then I spoke up and said, well... I've already decided to take the full amount. True enough, I had decided to take the full $20,000 policy. I decided the moment the agent planted the suggestion in my mind that perhaps I had some constitutional weakness that would make it hard for me to get as much insurance as I wanted. Very well, said the agent. Now that you have decided, I feel it is my duty to tell you that two of the doctors believe you have the tubular germ in your system while the other two disagree with them. The trick 
had been turned. Clever suggestion had pushed me over the fence of indecision, and we were all satisfied. Where does enthusiasm come in, do you ask? Never mind, it came in, all right. But if you wish to know who brought it, you will have to ask the life insurance agent for his four medical accomplices, for I am sure they must have had hearty laugh at my expense. But the trick was all right. I needed the insurance anyway. Of course, if you happen to be a life insurance agent, you will not grab this idea and work it out on the next prospective client who is slow in making up his mind about taking a policy. Of course you will not. A few months ago, I received one of the most effective pieces of advertising I had ever seen. It was a neat little book in which a clever automobile insurance salesman had reprinted press dispatches that he had gathered from all over the country in which it was shown that 65 automobiles had been stolen in a single day. On the back page of the book was this highly suggestive statement. Quote, your car may be the next one to go. Is it insured? Question mark. Quote. At the bottom of the page was the salesman's name and address, also the telephone number. Before I had finished reading the first two pages of the book, I called the salesman on the telephone and made an inquiry about rates. He came right over to see me, and you know the remainder of the story. Go back now to the two letters and let us analyze the second one, which brought the desired replies from all to whom it was sent. Study carefully the first paragraph, and you will observe that it asks a question which can be answered in one way. Compare this opening paragraph with that of the first letter by asking yourself which of the two would have impressed you most favorably. The paragraph is worded as it is for a twofold purpose. First, it is intended to serve the purpose of neutralizing the mind of the reader, so he will read the remainder of the letter in an open-minded attitude. And second, it asks a question which can be answered in but one way for the purpose of committing the reader to a viewpoint which harmonizes with the nature of the service that he is to be requested to render in subsequent paragraphs of the letter. In the second lesson of this course, you observed and Andrew Carnegie refused to answer my question when I asked him to what he attributed his success, until he had asked me to define the word success. He did this to avoid misunderstanding. The first paragraph of the letter we are analyzing is so worded that it states the object of the letter and at the same time practically forces the reader to accept that object as being sound and reasonable. Any person who would answer the question asked in this paragraph of the letter under discussion in the negative would, by the same answer, convict himself on the charge of selfishness, and no man wants to face himself with a guilty conscience on such a charge. Just as the farmer first plows his ground, then fertilizes it, and perhaps harrows it and prepares it to receive the seed in order that he may be sure of a crop, so does this paragraph fertilize the mind of the reader and prepare it for the seed which it is to be placed there through the subtle suggestion that the paragraph contains. Study carefully the second paragraph of the letter, and you observe that it carries a statement of fact which the reader can neither question nor deny. It provides him with no reason for argument because it is obviously based on this sound fundamental. It takes him the second step of psychological journey that leads straight towards compliance. With a request that is carefully clothed and covered up in the third paragraph of the letter. But you will notice that the third paragraph begins by paying the reader a nice little compliment that was not designed to make him angry. Therefore, if you will quote quite quoted. Therefore, if you will write me of your views as to the most essential points to be borne in the mind by those who are offering personal services for sale. 
quoted, etc. Study the wording of the sentence together with the setting in which it has been placed, and you will observe that it hardly appears to be a request at all. Certainly, there is nothing about it to suggest that the writer of the letter is requesting a favor for his personal benefit. At most, it can be construed merely as a request for a favor for others. Now study the closing paragraph and notice how tactfully concealed is the suggestion that if the reader should refuse the request, he is placing himself in an awkward position of one who does not care enough about those who are less fortunate than himself to spend a two-cent stamp and a few minutes of time for their benefit. From start to finish, the letter conveys its strongest impressions by mere suggestion. Yet this suggestion is so carefully covered that it is not obvious except upon careful analysis of the entire letter. The whole construction of the letter is such that if the reader lays it aside without complying with the request it makes, he he will have to reckon with his own conscience. This effect is intensified by the last sentence of the last paragraph, and especially by the last 13 words of the sentence, quote, Who will read your message, believe in it, and be guided by it, quote, this letter brings the reader up with a bang and turns his own conscience into an alley of the writer. It corners him, just as a hunter might corner a rabbit by driving it carefully into a prepared net. The best evidence of the analysis is correct. The fact that the letter brought replies from every person to whom it was sent, despite the fact that every one of these men was of the type that we speak of a man of affairs, the type that is generally supposed to be too busy to answer a letter of this nature. Not only did the letter bring the desired replies, but the men to whom it was sent replied in person, with the exception of the late Theodore Roosevelt, who replied under the signature of a secretary. Break, break. I would like to have a quick word from our sponsor. Thank you for your time. Let's get back to the reading. John Wanamaker and Frank A. Vanderlip wrote two of the finest letters that had ever read, read, each a masterpiece that might well have adorned the pages of a more dignified volume than the one for which the letters were requested. Andrew Carnegie also wrote a letter that was well worth consideration by all who have personal services for sale. William Jennings Bryan wrote a fine letter, as did also the late Lord Northcliffe. None of these men wrote merely to please me, for I was unknown to all of them, with the exception of four. They did not write to please me. They wrote to please themselves and to render a worthy service. Perhaps the wording of the letter had something to do with this, but as to that, I make no point other than to state that all these men whom I have mentioned, and most others of their type, are generally the most willing men to render services for others when they are properly approached. I wish to take advantage of this appropriate Opportunity to state that all of the really big men whom I had the pleasure of knowing have been the most willing and courteous men of my acquaintance when it came to rendering services that was a benefit to others. Perhaps that was the one reason why they really big men. The human mind is a marvelous masterpiece of machinery. One of its outstanding characteristics is noticed in the fact that all impressions which read it, whether through outside suggestion or auto-suggestion, are recorded together in groups which harmonize in nature. The negative impressions are stored away, all in one portion of the brain, while the positive impressions are stored in another portion. When one of these impressions, past experiences, is called into the conscious mind through the principle of memory, there is a tendency to recall with it all others of similar nature. Just as the raising of one link of a chain brings up the links with it, 
For example, anything that causes a feeling of doubt to rise in a person's mind is sufficient to call forth all of his experiences which cause him to become doubtful. If a man is asked by a stranger to cash a check, immediately he remembers having cash checks that were not good, or of having heard of others who did so. Through the law of association, all similar emotions, experiences, and senses impressions that reach the mind are filed away together, so that the recall of one has a tendency to bring back to the memory all of the others. To arouse a feeling of distress in a person's mind has a tendency to bring to the surface every doubt-building experiences that a person ever had. For this reason, successful salesmen endeavor to keep away from the discussion of subjects that may arouse the buyer's, quote, chain of doubt impressions, quote, which he has stored away by reason of previous experiences. The successful salesman quickly learns that, quote, knocking a competitor or competing article may result in bringing to the buyer's mind certain negative emotions growing out of previous experiences, which make it impossible for the salesman to neutralize the buyer's mind. This principle applies to and controls every sense of impression that is lodged in the human mind. Take the feeling of fear, for example. The moment we permit a single emotion that is related to fear to reach the conscious mind, it calls with it all of its unsavory relations. A feeling of courage cannot claim the attention of the conscious mind while a feeling of fear is there. While one of the most dominant, one or the other must be dominant. They make poor roommates because they do not harmonize in nature. Like attracts like. Every thought held in the conscious mind has a tendency to draw to it other thoughts of similar nature. You see, therefore, that these feelings, thoughts, and emotions growing out of past experiences, which claim the attention of the conscious mind, are backed by a regular army of supporting soldiers of a similar nature that stand ready to aid them in their work, deliberately place in your own mind through the principle of auto-suggestion, the ambition to succeed through the aid of definite chief aim, and notice how quickly all the latent, latent, latent and undeveloped ability and nature of past experiences will become stimulated and aroused to action on your behalf. Plant in a boy's mind, through the principle of suggestion, the ambition to become a successful lawyer or doctor or engineer or businessman or financier, and if you plant that suggestion deeply enough it will, and keep it there, by repetition, it will begin to move that boy toward achievement of the ob object of that amb ambition. If you would plant a suggestion deeply, mix it generously with enthusiasm, for enthusiasm is the fertilizer that will ensure its rapid growth as well as its permanency. When the kind-hearted old gentleman planted in my mind the suggestion that I was a bright boy and that I could make my mark in the world if I would educate myself, it was not so much what he said, as it was the way in which he said it that made such a deep and lasting impression on my mind. It was the way in which it gripped my shoulders, and he looked of confidence in his eyes that drove his suggestion so deeply into my subconscious that it never gave any peace until I commenced taking the steps that led to the fulfillment of that suggestion. This is one point that I would stress with all the power at my command. It is not so much what you say, as it is the tone and manner in which you say it that makes a lasting impression. It naturally follows, therefore, that sincerity of purpose, honesty, and earnestness must be placed back of all that one says if one would make a lasting and favorable impression. Whatever you, you successfully sell to others, you must first sell to yourself. Not long ago, I was approached by an agent of the government of Mexico who sought my services as a writer of propaganda for the administration in charge at the time. His approach 
was about as follows. Whereas Senor has a reputation as an exponent of the Golden Rule philosophy, and whereas Senor is known throughout the United States as an independent who is not allied with any political faction, now, therefore, would Senor be gracious enough to come to Mexico, study the economic political affairs of that country, then return to the United States and write a series of articles to appear in the newspapers recommending to the people of America the immediate recognition of Mexico by the government of the United States, etc. For this service, I was offered more money than I shall perhaps ever possess during my entire life, but I refused the commission, and for a reason that will fail to impress anyone except those who understand the principle, which makes it necessary for all who would influence others to remain on good terms with their own conscience. I could write convincingly of Mexico's cause for the reason that I did not believe in that calls. Therefore, I could not have mixed sufficient enthusiasm with my writing to have made it effective even though I had been willing to prostitute my talent and dip my pen in ink that I knew to be muddy. I will not endeavor further to explain my philosophy on this incident for the reason that these that those who are far enough advanced in the study of auto-suggestion will not need further explanation, while those who are not far enough advanced would not and could not understand. No man can afford to express, through words or acts, that which is not in harmony with his own belief, and if he does so, he must pay the loss of his ability to influence others. Please read, aloud, the foregoing paragraph. It is worth emphasizing by repetition the lack of observation of the principle upon which its base constitutes the rocks and reefs which many a man's definite chief aim dashes itself to pieces. I do not believe that I can afford to try to deceive anyone about anything, but I know that I cannot afford to try to deceive myself. To do so would destroy the power of my pen and render my words ineffective. It is only when I write with a fire of enthusiasm burning in my heart that my writing impresses others favorably, and it is only when I speak from a heart that is bursting with belief in my message that I can move my audience to accept that message. Thank you for your time today. I hope you learned as much as I did in this reading. If you ever desire to connect with me, you can email me at kb at keybravo.com. That is kb at keybravo.com. Have a wonderful day and may you be blessed with all the success you endeavor.